All right, you want to knock this thing out? What am I? What are we saying again? All right, so <laughs> I'm Paul Gilman, <laughs> and I'm Daniel Lance. <laughs> right. And this is Podso One. Alrighty, this week we've got William Still on to talk growing up in small town Georgia, specifically during the time of the Atlanta child murders, then later moving to DC to work various jobs on Capitol Hill, from a researcher at the NRSC to a press assistant on Phil Graham's campaign. He also tells us what it was like going to law school at night with two kids and a full-time lobbying job, for which he was actually in DC on 9-11. All that and more in this great conversation. Here's William. All right, welcome to episode, I think we're at 18 now? 17. Uh, 17, 18. Uh, got our good, my good buddy, William Still. I gotta start over. I don't know why I'm nervous now. You then, think this is our first one. It's amazing. <laughs> Ridiculous. You guys are good at this. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> uh, It's okay. All right, got my uh, good buddy, William Still one tonight. Uh, really excited to talk to him about his life story. Uh, William and I met in 2014. He's a uh, solid dude, uh, very, very funny in a very dry way, uh, and has a pretty compelling story that I can't wait to uh, dive deeper into. So welcome, William. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right. So, William, I, I think you've essentially lived most of your life in the state of Georgia, right? That's right. Born here, uh, grew up here, uh, m- mostly around uh, in the Atlanta suburbs, uh, went to Washington, D.C. for a few years uh, right after college, uh, moved back to Atlanta when we started our family and have been here ever since. So it's been, call it 22 years since we moved back. Yeah, so besides D.C., you've basically been uh, metropolitan Atlanta. Athens, do you consider Athens metropolitan Atlanta? Not really. I mean, it, it, it not really, but it's close enough. Yeah, so born in Athens and then uh, grew up. I think in Dallas, right? Entirely in Dallas. Yeah, da- Dallas, Georgia. Yep, yeah, grew up in Dallas, Georgia until uh, until high school. Moved uh, to uh, Walton County, a uh, little little unincorporated area called Bold Springs. So that was a, a little area of a very uh, few people, but it's where my uh, dad's parents lived, and so we moved there and uh, right before high school, and graduated from Monroe Area Comprehensive High School. The the Home of the Purple Hurricanes, which is a very interesting mascot. Say the name of the high school again. Monroe Area Comprehensive High School. What is that? So Monroe Area, I understand, but why throw comprehensive in there? I think it had to do with it offered uh, things like shop and ag and, and kind of business classes and cosmetology. It really was a career track, uh, college track. You know, it had multiple... Uh, multiple things going on there. Also, it makes the acronym uh, M-A-C-H. That's right, matches. Or, or like mock speed, you know. Oh, that's true, yeah, yeah. And in fact, the Purple Hurricane should have played on that. <laughs> we should have. We could never quite decide if the mascot was a hurricane, which is a very hard thing to uh, approximate in uh, anthropomorphic form. So mostly it ended up being a tornado with, with arms. That was our mascot. That was that was about five foot ten. That's right, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I uh, graduated from high school and uh, was lucky enough to get in the University of Georgia uh, and uh, studied uh, history. Uh, 
bounced around like I think like most college people do is you know a couple different majors and dabbled in a couple different things uh was very interested in religion classes but i was much too lazy to learn foreign languages and so deciding to try, try thinking about trying to learn ancient greek or or latin just was that was beyond my uh interest or or uh, ability so i said well you know what i'll be a history major and i'll focus on american history because there's no foreign language there what, what was the plan to, uh, with the history major after you graduated? It was really unclear. Uh, in fact, uh, it, graduation sort of snuck up on me. And uh, I guess it was a couple of months before I was supposed to graduate. I sort of had a little freak out and said, well, I, what am I actually prepared to do? What do I want to do? Uh, thought I would move out to Wyoming and just kind of work at Yellowstone for a, a little while to kind of get my bearings. But uh, in, in the, during that time, I was uh, dating a woman who I ended up marrying. And so I stuck around and uh, thought I was going to be a high school teacher. So I actually went back to UGA for another year, got a degree in social science education, thinking I would be a history uh, teacher uh, at the high school level. I actually did some student teaching. So I actually got into a classroom and had to try to manage 30 uh, 15-year-olds, which is a pretty pretty amazing task and, and very uh, uh, not sure it's, it's my personality to, to do that kind of thing. But it was interesting, uh, that's for sure. And uh, we, when my wife graduated, when I graduated, we uh, got married and then quickly moved to uh, Washington, D.C., where uh, she worked on Capitol Hill. And I ended up working on the Hill, but it, it did a couple of little jobs here and there, that, more on the political side uh, than policy. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about some of that. Uh, really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so history, it sounds like you just enjoyed learning about history and you would figure it out after you graduated kind of thing. No, that's right. I mean, it's it's a pretty, uh, pretty generic or wide open uh, sort of background, right? You could go in and be a, any, a teacher at any level if that's what you wanted to do. Uh, I ended up going to law school. A lot of people kind of use, uh, use that as a platform for law school. But yeah, it's there's no real career path for history major. Um, not, not a lot of money probably in being a, a quote unquote historian. So yeah, it, it was really more of a, it's something I'm interested in. It's something I, I, I'm good at and, and uh, we'll figure out the rest from there. Right. And you, it's funny, you mentioned Yellowstone. I, I, I love the national parks, especially the ones out West. I have not been to Yellowstone, but anybody that is a big fan of the national park system, Yellowstone is in their top two or three. Um, why? Why? Absolutely. Is, why? Why was it in your uh, basically your your top choice? Well, uh, that's uh, interesting. But we basically, I uh, went and worked there for a summer. Uh, a girl I was dating at the time, she found out that you could go and they have these little resort areas or dude ranches or whatever you want to call them, uh, kind of around the park, and uh, she wanted to do that and i said it sounds like a great thing let's let's go out and do it so we got in a greyhound bus and three days later we were in uh what was called pasca still still called pasca it was a uh it was actually buffalo bill's hunting lodge outside of cody wyoming so he would come bring his uh friends into cody they would take the road up to the hunting lodge and then of course there was no park there at the time but they'd go into what was the park and uh and go hunting 
and uh, then go back down to, you know, it's been months there. So it was a pretty interesting uh, area. And the interesting thing about that was even though we didn't have a car, there were people who worked there who had cars. And so we would, would be able to borrow their car and either go down to Cody or go through the park and, you know, go hiking, see all the geothermal uh, features, just spend the day on your, on your off days. Uh, I was the tour guide at, at Pahaska Teepee for the hunting lodge. So that was kind of a, an interesting thing. And you'd get all kinds of people coming through, all kinds of tourists, families, lots of bikers would come through. Um, There's a you know, big ra uh, rally in Sturgis. Uh, so you'd get a lot of the, the Harley bikers coming through, going to Sturgis at, at a certain time. And so it was, it was very interesting uh, people watching. You'd get, uh, we would always laugh, you'd get the tourists that would come in and, you know, we had one who would ask at one point, you know, what time do they, what time do, does Yellowstone close? Well, it's a national park, it doesn't really close, right? It, they don't, they don't turn off Old Faithful and go, okay, it's 10 o'clock, you know, you gotta, gotta leave, it's, it's doing its thing, whatever. So, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of people coming through there. But it's, I mean, it's a beautiful place, you should definitely go. Yeah. Uh, not to bore you with this, but uh, we had a choice between the Big Five in Southern Utah and Yellowstone, and my wife told me we were going to see the Big Five in Utah. Well, you were a smart man for 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 doing that. Yeah, I, I, no, no challenges. So That's yeah, right. We, we move forward. Uh, so, tell us what it's like growing up in Dallas, Georgia. Well, at the time when I was there, and and you know, it's grown up a lot in the last forty plus years. Uh, I'll leave it at that, I guess. But uh, when I was there in the early 70s, mid 70s, uh, it was a very small town, had one traffic light in the whole county. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a pretty in, you know, great place to grow up, I think, as a kid. It uh, seemed boring as you got older, but when, you know, when you were a younger kid, you had a skating rink. And so uh, you were there pretty much every weekend, someone's birthday party or just hanging out. And you had uh, video games, you know, that was the first kind of where, where video games were found, you know, they were the big console games at the, uh, at the skating rink. So you'd, you'd go and skate a little bit and spend a few dollars uh, getting your little suicide drink and then go in and play in uh, video games for a couple hours. So it was, it was fun. Uh, and then, uh, you know, lots of, lots of friends and it was kind of wide open. Uh, you know, the town was small. You could ride your bike uh, to, to places and to your friend's house or go spend the day walking through the woods and uh, sort of, you know, your parents didn't sort of worry over you. You'd come home when the sun started going down. It's, it, it was pretty typical, I think, for people our age, I think, for our kids. And I'm not sure, not sure that's the typical experience they're having anymore. But it was a, it was a pretty, pretty good place to grow up. So um, a skating rink, is that one of those – places where people just um, put on rollerblades and skate around in circles and listen to 80s music? Uh, no, it, there were no uh, rollerblades at the time. Those, th these were the traditional four on the floor quads that uh, there, there was, there was no rollerblade. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. That, that came later. That, that's the, that's the post, uh, post seventies ironic skating, I think is, is what you're thinking of. Right. Okay. 80s music, uh, it would be a few years before that, that was uh, written and performed. Yeah, we just called it 80s music. We just called it music at the time, right? It was, <laughs> there was no 80s music. It was just music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there are still some of those around. Uh, I know that there's one near Richmond, at least. I, I, that, that's, that's just all I've, he I've heard about it. 
Oh, it was, I mean, you know, it was, it was great. You know, you'd have a friend or you, you'd have your birthday party there and everybody would come skate and, you know, you'd, you'd go into the little room and have your birthday party. It was all, it was all big fun. Yeah. So you mentioned console video games. What was your favorite? Uh, well, the, the, on the upright, it probably was like a, a defender, I think was probably mm -hmm. my favorite. Uh, you know, Pac-Man was obviously, uh, the, the classic, uh, I remember Dragon's Lair when that came out. That was a very realistic for the time kind of cartoon game. Right. Uh, technology was a, a, just kind of leaps and bounds from what, what had been out there ahead of time. So that was that was always worth the dollar that it cost. Everything else was a quarter, except that was I, I remember that being quite expensive. But, uh, it, it probably was a 50 cent experience, but because they charged you a dollar, I guess it made you feel like it was a dollar experience. That's right. That's probably right. So. Hey, uh, so Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man were certainly two of my favorites, but I also enjoyed, and I can never get anybody to agree if I ask any two people. So this will, well, actually Daniel doesn't understand this reference, maybe. Galaga or Galaga? Galaga. I would say, I say Galaga. It's Galaga. Galaga. Okay. Yeah. You said Galaga? I, I, I have weird friends that can't pronounce things. Yeah, no, it's definitely Galaga. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely Galaga. That was a great well, game, too, you know. How yeah, about Galaga? Was... I mean, there's only one L there. But I digress. All right, so... It's like Galaxy, but instead of this X, Y at the end, it's the GA. Ah, okay. You know what I mean? There you go. Yeah, that's see? Linguist. To help us that's out. right. That's right. Boom, yeah, I have a PhD. Right. So, hey, William, how old were you when your family moved out of Dallas? So it was uh, 84, so I was 13. Um, yeah, that, that'd be about right, 34. So you, you were in Dallas 84. when the whole Wayne Williams thing was going on. Oh, yeah, but that was, uh, that was a, big, a big story. But, and uh, it, was, it was definitely uh, something that you were aware of when you were a kid growing up uh, right outside of Atlanta. Of course, you know, when you were a kid, you don't have any sense of, of distance or kind of what's happening. You would just kind of get this sense from your parents that something was going on and you'd sit down and watch TV and, you know, it would, <clears throat> they would come on every, every hour and say, you know, it's nine o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? So you knew there was this thing going on. You didn't have a sense of, well, it's 25 miles from here and the odds of me or my friends getting picked up by a guy and, and, and killed were, were pretty remote, but it was because it was, but it was, you know, all over the news and everything, you know, all that your parents talked about with their friends and everything. So it was, a, it was a big deal. Uh, and it's, it's sort of come back in the news, but uh, how was, did, did you guys have an awareness of that up in, in Virginia? Yeah. What year was it? 79, 80? Yeah, that's right. It's 79 to like, I think the trial was 81, something like that. Yeah. I remember I was 10, 11 years old and I remember I, I understood that Georgia was not uh, nearby, but I, it frankly made everybody uh, who was a child or a parent nervous that uh, their kid was going to be grabbed and killed. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it was definitely, from my perspective, it had to be national news. If, if we were hearing about it in Virginia, it, it was all over the country. Yeah, I think it was kind of a time where, you know, media was kind of getting more national. I think CNN was starting around that time, and and you know, you you would get more national news coverage than. And so I think, you know, there's probably stuff like that that happened all the time before before then, and and uh, but it wasn't a national story because it just wasn't a national kind of media approach. And now it's it's even more so. I mean, you know, some some 
kid gets picked up in the middle of Arizona and it's going to lead the news on CNN or Fox or where, you know, wherever for a, a day or two. But, but, you know, it, it really back then I think was kind of the first, at least from my perspective, my memory, kind of the first big national story like that. Do you think that the media helped along the, the fear of strangers and the aversion to hitchhiking that has happened in the last like 20 years? Oh, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it, again, it's, it's all, you know, it's not like bad people started in the 70s. Uh, it, 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 they've always been around, and I think there's always been uh, that element. But I think it's the awareness has, has grown through through these stories and through the, the media coverage and, and probably over coverage. Uh, me and, and several of my friends at, at work have you know, listened to podcasts. I've gone back and read a couple of books and looked at news coverage and uh, – and so know you know a little more about that and about that than probably you know definitely when I was a kid um, and and I think the news coverage was i mean it was it was front page every day for three years basically yeah my my recollection is because I, I think what over thirty kids were went missing and presumably dead i th- I think they found most of uh, the bodies, but it became national news when it was in the the high teens low twenties I think yeah it, it just seemed insane because as a kid or a parent, I, and because to your point, it was the first national sort of story like that, people just, uh, we, we were dumbfounded that that could happen. Yeah. But to your point, it's probably been happening since uh, the beginning of, of time. Right. Yeah. And the, you know, there's been a, a couple of things, like, like I said, that's brought it back in the news. There was this, this show on uh, Netflix called Mind hunter did you guys ever have you have you guys ever checked that out you've seen mine hunter i've not seen the uh wayne williams uh yeah it's it's season two it it really is kind of the the through story of season two and and uh i've kind of framed set up but that the guy who john douglas who's the fbi profiler that's sort of the who that's based on he he wrote about that case and there was a a podcast a couple years ago out of atlanta that that covered it and so uh um yeah, pro- probably a little bit of a an unhealthy interest in it, at least from my wife's perspective. We've actually gone and driven by the bridge where he was uh, accused of throwing off one of the bodies where he was eventually, you know, kind of picked up uh, and first identified as a suspect. Uh, we've gone by the, the his house. Uh, my wife, it's it's not in a great part of town. And so uh, I, I always tell my wife after the fact when I get home that, that you know, we, we went on the Wayne Williams tour. Wow. Yeah. You, you really are interested in it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, it's uh it definitely was a big part of, of growing up, you know, in, in, in this area. Cause it, it was, it was all over. I mean, and, and it was something that you, you were aware of. And he was emphatically linked to over 30 uh, murders, right? Yeah. They, they convicted him of two uh, murders and, they, and, and it's, pretty controversial because the the murders that he was convicted of were 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 basically young adults and then uh they were the only two young adults that were were linked to the to the whole group uh but not convicted for any of the kids but there was a lot of circumstantial evidence like hair fibers there was a green carpet that i think they said that had been sold only in 400 installed in only like 400 houses or something and his house had it. So, I mean, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to link him to, to some of the other kids, but he was never convicted. And it's been a, I mean, you, you can imagine if you're one of the parents uh, of the kids and, and not having that closure of, of someone saying definitely he did it. 
uh, or definitely he didn't do it. So it, it's it's been controversial. Our our uh, the mayor of Atlanta has uh, asked, uh, and, and I think they're, 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 um, to to reopen some of the DNA. There's been some advances in DNA testing, kind of gene genealogical DNA testing, where uh, they can take strands and and find relatives. Maybe they don't have you know, Paul's DNA, but maybe they have your uncle's. And so they can start matching and then closing in on suspects through the, through the family tree. And so there's new techniques like that that they're trying to apply to this case because uh, there wasn't really a DNA evidence uh, uh, at, that they could test at the time to link Williams to, to the murders. Yeah, and the the parents of those kids, uh, they're probably in their 60s and 70s now. So they... I, I'm sure they would still welcome closure if it could come to them. Even. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, there'll be, there'll be news stories uh, on, on the local television stations, you know, every couple of months where they're looking to do a memorial and you'll, you'll, they'll interview some of the parents and stuff. So yeah, there's still, there's still parents out there that, that live through that. Yeah. Awful story, but very interesting as well. Yeah, uh, I don't think you're weird for uh, going on the Wayne Williams tour. <laughs> well, good. Well, maybe when we get it set up, we can. Well, you could be our first customer. Yeah, perfect. I think that there's a there's a universal appeal or fascination. It's on a human level for you know murder and kidnapping and these horrible things that people regular people in their right mind wouldn't do. There's such right. a fascination for trying to figure out people that do do that. Like if I had a nickel for every podcast out there that's just devoted to murder and crime and unsolved murders, all that stuff, I'd be set for life. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Rock on. So Mr. William, you are a married man. I am, uh, yes, 26th year here. 26 years, wow, that is how old I am. Well, there you how go. How about that? Um, there, thank you for that. <laughs> so uh, tell us about, let's rewind 26 years, how did you meet your wife? So I, I met her at a party. Uh, I was working at a pizza hut in, in Athens and uh, delivering pizzas and uh, met a girl there and uh, thought she was pretty, you know, pretty good looking, pretty interesting. And so I asked her out one day and she said, well, uh, I actually have a boyfriend, but I think you guys would get along great. So why don't you come over and let's hang out? So I, I, I don't know why, but I guess I did. And so went over there and hung out with her and her boyfriend a couple of times. And one night they were having a party and I went over and there was this, uh, there was this girl there down from Gettysburg college. And I uh, introduced myself and we talked a little bit, not a lot, but uh, a little bit. And uh, she went back to, she went back to college and uh, went back to Gettysburg and I kept, you know, hanging out with my friends and finally, uh, Keith, that's her name, Keith. Uh, she moved back to uh, to go to University of Georgia, and um, we started hanging out, and the rest is history, basically. Uh, so just to be clear, this, the, this wasn't the girl that you had the crush on at first. This was her friend not the first, at the party. Not the first girl. That's right, the second girl. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Keith is from Georgia, but she went to school in Gettysburg? Yeah, she did. That's I mean, uh, that, a long haul to a very small place. It is. She she wanted to go to Georgia. Her parents are uh, are tech people, and 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 Georgia, you know, Georgia tech people don't like Georgia people. We Georgia people feel sorry for Georgia tech people, so there's not the animosity going the other way. But but tech people really have a have a thing about Georgia, and so uh, 
they basically told her you can go wherever you want uh, except Georgia. And so uh, she went to Gettysburg for a couple years. She she played tennis up there uh, uh, for the school, and then but you know really wasn't. It is a it is a very small place. It's sort of like a your your you know what fifth through eighth year of high school in in some ways I think because it just is kind of small. So she wanted to get back to Georgia and convinced her parents to let her move down. And wow. I I, th I think you know three grandchildren later they're they're happy for that. <laughs> Yeah, it paid off. That's um, right. Yeah, no, I I remember visiting Get Gettysburg as a kid, and and I, like I'll never forget the impression just it had on my mind, like the combination of these wide open fields that were prohibited from being developed upon, with the fact that there was you know atrocious death and destruction on them. Like it was all very impactful, and it's even when I, I still have that impression of it, um, even from being a kid. I think it would be so cool to go to school there. Um, well, she, I mean, you know, she would, she talked about how they would go study in the battlefield. You know, they would be sitting there in Devil's Den reading their, their uh, English homework or whatever. And tourists would come by and, you know, listening to their, their uh, headsets about, you know, in, in this place, you know, so many thousand people were slaughtered. So it is, it is kind of a surreal uh, experience, I think. Yeah. And, and then there's the ghost stories, you know, then there's the, the story of the, the, the person who gets, you know, the only the only civilian to die, and of course the house is is haunted because they're the only civilian who dies. So there's all kinds of of that overlay as well. Oh, uh, cool! That that, that that the students learn. So yeah, it, I I think it, it it's it would be an interesting place to go to school. But you definitely have to you definitely have to have the 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 mindset for it because it is it is small and it is uh, in a lot of ways I think pretty pretty cliquish. Oh, okay, and I'm gonna get caught for my geography here, but it's in. Uh... Pennsylvania or Virginia? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, uh, just, okay. Just over. We, Ooh, we first guess. We'll remind uh, some and our new listeners uh, need to understand that Daniel spent most of his life overseas. So U.S. geography can be a challenge from time to time. That's true. And U.S. politicians, uh, especially those, you know, from the 90s into the 2000s. There you so, go. Let's that sounds like a transition. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I hear that your wife worked for uh, Bill Frist, who I just looked up on Wikipedia about 30 minutes ago, and he struck me as a pretty interesting character. So tell us about your wife working on that campaign. So she was, she was a political science major at uh, University of Georgia, and when she graduated, she started working at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, the person who brought her on to that organization uh, was the campaign manager for uh, then it was Dr. Frist. Now it, you know, it's former Senator Frist, but uh, so she, he, he brought Keith up to organize the press office, start kind of setting up the campaign organization. So she did some of that work. And then as the campaign went on, uh, continue going until pretty much from October until the election, she, lived in Nashville and I was living in Lawrenceville here in, in, in Atlanta and uh, would go up there on the weekends while, while she was, you know, doing the campaign work. And uh, it was, it was, a, it was very, I mean, it was a very interesting, uh, a very interesting time. It was the 94 election, which uh, you, you don't remember because I don't even know that you were born then if I could do the quick math, but uh, it was uh, what's called the Republican revolution where uh, Republicans took over the house for the first time and, and, probably I think 40 or 50 years and 
just so it, it was a it was a pretty exciting time, especially for people of, of my political persuasion. And uh, you know, Keith was able to 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 be on the campaign, and and we were actually uh, I had been she was over at the campaign and the the head campaign headquarters and, and the party that night on election night, and I was back at the, the headquarters watching television. And when I saw that the races were starting to come in, I walked over to the hotel where the where the party was going on and uh, met up with Keith. And about that time, it, it became clear that they were about to call their election, uh, the, Senator Frist, uh, the Frist election. So we went up uh, to the uh, to the hotel room where the senator and his family and some of the campaign aides were. And we're, we're talking and about that time. The phone rang and, and it was the concession from his opponent, Jim Sasser, Senator Sasser. Uh, so we were in the room when he when he uh, received the concession. So that was a pretty interesting experience. And then immediately Keith and her colleagues got you know, got to work on writing the victory speech. And I went back to watching television. So it was kind of so, a, oh, kind Keith of was involved night. with writing speeches. Oh yeah, she was she was a she worked in the press office, and so she was uh, wrote the press releases and was part of writing speeches for him as well. Yeah, being in the hotel room has to be uh, like a once in a lifetime kind of experience. Uh, the, the level of, of excitement and joy after spending so much time campaigning, it's not just the politician campaigning, it's his entire team. That, that had to be a really cool experience. And I think Sasser, I think you were telling me he was a three-term senator, right? Yeah, he, he, was, he had been in, in for 18 years. In fact, that was one of the slogans that they came up with was 18 years is long enough. And uh, so that, that was, uh, that, I, I guess, Tennesseans, or at least some of them, enough of them agreed that 18 years was enough. So yeah, he he was pretty entrenched. I'm I think shocked. Probably enough for any senator. <laughs> it should be more than enough, in, in my view. Yeah, but yeah. no, I mean for for me, definitely it was a it's a once in a lifetime uh, experience, and 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 something you know I don't think about that often, but when you know when I do think about politics and and kind of my life uh, at that time, I mean it, it was definitely a unique thing to to experience. For someone that doesn't know Bill Frist, uh, what was what was he like? Uh, he, I mean, he's a great guy. He's a heart transplant surgeon. That was that was his his claim to fame. Uh, his family, uh, I think, uh, founded HCA Healthcare uh, in Tennessee, and so uh, a lot of doctors in, in his family. And um, I think it was I think it was the first sort of idea of of Hillary Care that sort of energized him to if I remember correctly, to uh, when, when uh, Clinton was first elected, that sort of energized him to get active. And so he, he really cared about the, the, the policy issues and was was a uh, quick learner about policy issues. And in fact, he was uh, successful enough where he eventually became uh, you know majority leader for a time uh, long after we had left Washington, long after Keith was no longer on the staff. But uh, but he was a you know great guy and, and – uh, I think of a, a great senator for Tennessee for sure. And he, uh, I don't know if this is a common thing at all for senators, but I read that he said that he would step down after two terms. He said, that's it. I'm going to do two terms and, and leave. And, 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 and did. And, and then and he, he actually he, did. He actually did. And, and like I said, he was, he was the majority leader of the Senate and, and still stepped down. And so, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that says a lot about his integrity. Um, it's easy to make those promises when you're when you're running, and you, you maybe there's a chance you're not going to win. But to actually live through those promises and and keep them, I think that that, that speaks to your character. Oh, absolutely, and and like it's it's not a promise of doing something next week. It's a promise of doing something in 12 years. 
and a lot of things can change in 12 years and, and he's still stuck to his word. So I think that's absolutely pretty cool. Yeah. Well, another story is he, you know, he, he, uh, he was famous for, uh, there was a guy coming to his office to, uh, he was a constituent and he was wanting to lobby on some issue or petition on some issue or whatever. And, uh, collapsed had a heart attack in the uh in the elevator and someone came running in the senate office and and the senator came out and basically rescued him saved his life is, is there a doctor in the senate yeah literally literally that literally that scenario yes <laughs> wow yeah that's amazing that is very cool uh, an intersection with uh petraeus or is that or i think it's somebody else uh, that I don't know. It, it's possible, but I, I don't know that. I mean, we were there until 97, end of 97. So I think Keith was the, his press secretary from maybe 96 and 97, uh, before we moved back to Atlanta. Um, so yeah, right after, you know, after the election, after, uh, Senator won, uh, Keith got the call that he wanted her to come up and be part of his press office in DC. And, we were newly married, and as much of a, you know, my career sacrifice for her was I stopped working at the subway while I was looking for a teaching job and decided to move to D.C. You're a good man. And, uh, yeah, I know. It's, I, I give so much. You know, she, doesn't, she doesn't remember that, uh, I don't think, very much. But, uh, no, I gave up my, I gave up my sam- sandwich artistry, uh, and we moved to D.C. And, uh, you know, we had made some friends on the campaign, and, uh, you know, we were – gosh, young, 25, you know, whatever. And, and very, very, very young, needless to say. And, um, no, no money to fly up for the weekend to look for housing. So we basically, um, relied on our friends. You know, we would call them and say, Hey, we're looking for a place to live. What areas should we look in? And, you know, really relied on their advice. And so we signed a lease sight unseen on a place and, uh, I remember the landlord, we were talking to him and he was like, are you sure you don't want to come up and, and, and take a look at it and make sure it's okay? And we said, frankly, we can't, we don't have time and we can't really afford to, to take a separate trip. So I'm sure it's fine. And uh, we, we both kind of had this unspoken nervousness as we crossed the beltway uh, and, and, you know, some of the, some of the areas and started kind of, it was, it was a lot different from our experience living in the suburbs of Atlanta. So there was a little bit of unspoken hesitation of, Oh my gosh, is this place going to be okay? Did we make the right decision? What, what's going to happen? But it, it was a, it was a beautiful place. It was in a, a place called park Fairfax right outside of DC near the, near the Pentagon. It was actually kind of a, one of the first big developments uh, when they started in, in the war, building up the Pentagon and, and everything. And uh, so it was, it was a great place to, to live and just, you know, still in the South in Virginia, but, but close enough that you could drive in in the morning and not have too much traffic. Mm. That's great that it worked out. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was funny. We talked about it afterward. We didn't say anything in the car, but later, later that, uh, that week, we both kind of admitted that we had a little bit of nervousness as we first pulled up you know, to, the, to the area. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Virginian, William, I will tell you that that part of uh, the state of Virginia is not part of the South in uh, 2020. No, I know it, it. It wasn't really in 1994 either. But you know, yeah, take part what of you the can South, get. Meaning, like the the South, like the conservative South. Yeah, I think I think culturally, I think uh, you know, it's it's 
you know, DC is a, is a big blend. I mean, obviously of, of, of all kinds of people. And so, you know, you've got people from all over living in, in Alexandria and, and Arlington. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, culturally it's, it, it, yes, it's, it's more liberal than the, the conservative South, what people think of as a conservative South, but it, in some ways it's, it's, I, I can't quite remember the, the, the saying, was it Kennedy that said DC has the, the, the charm of a Northern city and the weather of a Southern city. I think that's what, how he described it. So something like that. Was he being ironic? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he was. Yes. I, I don't really associate Northern cities with being charming. I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but. You um, alienated uh, at least half our listeners. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> to my New England family, if you ever listen to this, I, I am sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Coattails. I think I, I just I just looked at Wash, it, it, what the the first quote that comes up on the internet, so we know it's accurate. Washington is a city of southern efficiency and northern charm. Yeah, so that that was the that was the saying. So. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, ironic or sarcastic. Yeah. And that that's was right. That was Kennedy. Which, which Kennedy? John John F. The John. All right. Yeah. Um, so you, so yeah, you wrote, I wrote I wrote her a coattails. That's that's exactly right. So but we, you, we, you didn't you know you weren't not pulling your weight at all because you did get a job uh, once you were in D.C. Right? Yeah, that's that's right. I started working at the National Republican Senatorial Committee. I was doing opposition research, uh, what we called the uh, the track, and it was a, a room of maybe ten by twenty, where they would cram twenty of us. Uh, we were lined around the, the perimeter of the walls with our back to the middle, and we sat there all day just coding in uh, art, news articles, press releases, all kinds of, of, uh, of uh, information that we could get a hold of and, uh, on, on the uh, Democrat opponents and on the Republican you know, uh, 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 candidates as well. And uh, just doing opposition research, coding them in uh, by keyword, by topic, by issue, uh, how they voted, what they, you know, what they said to their constituents versus how they voted in, in D.C. So that during the, the, when the campaign really got under, underway, uh, you had an opposition research book already built on that candidate that the, that the, the Republican could use. And uh, it, was, it was interesting because, like I said, it was – you know, at eight hours in, in the track and, and, you know, lots of young conservatives, very passionate, very committed people uh, to, to spend, the, you know, those hours and that kind of work and not, not very much, uh, not very much money. Um, and so lots of good philosophical debates among passionate people who knew very little, but what they, what they really firmly believed in. So like when, when I see commercials that say, this senator voted 11 times to raise taxes on the middle class and, and these obscure statistics that come out, like, is that part of the, what the research that you produced at the NRSC? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly right. You would see, you know, in, in what you're, in what you're describing, you'd either, you'd see, you know, reference to the roll call votes and then you'd see maybe a reference to the local newspaper that where they would have a pull a quote from that's all being pulled by, 20, 24 year olds who are sitting in a uh, windowless room, uh, coding and votes and quotes into a, into a tracking system. Driven by their, their zeal for ideology and conservative values. 
Yeah, well, that that's right. On 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 obviously on on my side, and the, of course the Democrat side has their own has their own committee doing the exact same thing. Oh, I'm uh, sure. I think our most famous uh, alumni, actually, from from when I was there at the track, is a is a guy named Sean Spicer who became the uh, press <laughs> no secretary way. for uh, for the president. Yeah, for a short time. So yeah, How about Sean, that? Sean was on the track while while I was there. So that that's it's kind of. Uh, it's kind of interesting to, to turn on television and go, hey, that's a guy that I went to the Capitals game with or, or whatever. So, Well, hey, uh, William, you can maybe uh, help us get him on the, uh, the podcast, man. I'll, I'll, I'll get right on it. I'll see what I can do. That's very cool. Um, it kind of, as somebody that's working in the, in the technology world right now, it, I'm curious as to how much of that is automated these days, but uh, how much of the scraping the internet for articles and identifying labeling tagging and inputting them into some kind of central database like that is there's like machine learning and natural language processing technologies that's growing in ability to be able to read an article and deduce whether it has positive or negative connotation about the subject matter and, and then automatically label it and tag it i'm wondering if that level of technology has reached the uh, nrsc or the drsc or no, the ndsc if that exists yeah, I don't know. It's been a long, that's a long time ago. So I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm sure they're working on it. I, I, the question is, is it cheaper for the machine or is it cheaper to have, you know, 25 guys who are willing to sit around and, and, and make minimum wage do, doing this for the, you know, because it's it obviously part of the trade-off is you're networking, you're going to events, mm. you're getting invited to briefings. And so, you know, you're, you're able to take that position hopefully and move up and, you know, in in, uh, in you know Sean's case, become the 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 press secretary for the president. Uh, in my case, you know, I'm a I'm a regulatory compliance attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm not sure how those how that path went, but uh, but yeah. So that's that's part of it. And you know, I uh, there's there's that hope of of a of a of a job and a, of a career path coming out of it. But I'm yeah. sure I'm sure there is. You know, it's much more automated. I'm sure than than it was back then. You know, back then I would I would spend days in the Library of Congress, in the uh, in the new in the news periodicals room, uh, pulling newspapers. You know, going to get the Des Moines Register to to see how Senator Harkin voted on a certain topic or how he how he uh, framed it to his constituents, uh, and then go back and take that information and enter it into the into the computer system. Wow, that, I think yeah, that that point about the human element and the networking element is that's a very strong case. Uh, especially it sounds like a really cool environment just being around a bunch of 20 somethings that are all just really passionate about what they're doing and they're not making any money and they're all in the same boat. I think that's a cool, uh, that sounds like a really fun environment to be in. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was, it was a blast actually. And, and, uh, yeah, and 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 you know, in my in my case, it it led to you know the next step in in, in what I did in D.C., which was I was the uh, uh, director of correspondence and, and a assistant press a press assistant with uh, the Phil Graham campaign for president in 1996. So that was a kind of a, another, at least for me, Paul, a once in a lifetime uh, event to to be involved in. Uh, I can't quite remember when I joined. It was. Um, it was, uh, I want to say mid 95. I don't know that I was there a whole year, um, but uh, work there. And uh, again, with lots of, lots of young, uh, talented people who were uh, cared passionately about, about the, 
the issues that that you know the senator cared about and um we're there to try to, to to change the world and uh you know there really is to, to your point paul you know it's a campaign isn't i mean it's not just about the candidate when you're when you're working there i mean it's about you it's about it's not just your job it's it's what you believe in it's what you you know your passions are for and what drives you forward and so uh in in my case in in that case i got to see the the uh the phone call from the other side i guess if you will because uh, that that campaign didn't quite go as well as the the first campaign <clears throat> but uh you know we we lost in iowa it was a pretty pretty embarrassing loss uh senator graham had uh a lot of money early in the campaign and so had had this kind of air uh, aura of invincibility or inevitability uh and so when he lost in iowa i was actually scheduled to go it was valentine's day i was scheduled to go to new hampshire i think the next day uh, i had a bag packed ready to go my wife had put a valentine's card in it because i wasn't going to be there for valentine's but uh as I was you know, getting packed and getting ready to go, they told us to come up to Capitol Hill that the Senator had an announcement to make. They filed all of his staff into a, into a conference room and, and uh, our committee room and announced he, he came up and thanked us all for our help and announced he was suspending his campaign. And um, it, was, it was pretty, you know, pretty devastating for, for all of us in the room and for him. I mean, it's something he had mm -hmm. been doing and obviously it's, it's a personal rejection, no matter how you put it. Uh, with, when you know the, the electorate says no, no, thank you. Um, and so you know we listened to him. We started filing out. I remember that there was uh, you know people crying, and as you could expect, and there were news media cameras out out you know out outside the door, trying to get pictures of, of I guess staffers crying. And I can remember kind of jostling against the camera, trying to to block the view and, and stuff mm. like that. So it was, you know, kind of a, a sad day and a, a sad outcome. But I mean, again, lots of great people, lots of great energy, um, fun experiences. I, I remember there was a, a, a blizzard in DC one morning and uh, my job was to go in and do the early morning press clippings. So we'd get news services to come in. I would clip out the, the news of the over from overnight so that the, you know, Campaign staff could give him brief, give the senator briefings on you know here are the topics that you should expect to hear about today. Here's kind of how the the story you know played out overnight, and I was the only one in the office because of the blizzard, and doing my clippings. And the phone rang and I answered it. And it was the senator. He was driving to some event out in Iowa and uh, asked me what what was going on, what was in the news, and so I got to speak to him for a few minutes. And when you're, you know. 25 years old that's that's pretty damn heady stuff and uh, <laughs> you know you you feel like you're you're in the you know you're in the game then uh and then they hung up and went on his way and i got about the rest of my my day so you know so did you personally look up to figures like phil graham or uh, bill frist yeah i mean i i yes i i admired the, them uh that i worked for i mean i think uh it's it's uh not necessarily not necessary for you to admire the person you work for i mean i but i think it it, it helps uh and it's, especially in politics because back then i don't know what it is now back then the pay was was fairly low and you know very long hours and so you, you had to have you know this is a, a cliche but you had to have passion you had mm -hmm. to be driven by a belief in something 
whether it was this person's fulfilling this ideology that I believe in or I admire this person. Uh, but I was lucky to, to work for uh, Senator Graham, who I admire greatly. Uh, I worked for Senator Coverdell, who was a senator for, uh, for Georgia for a number of years before he passed away who I admired greatly. So, uh, and, and we talked about Senator Frist. He was a, even though I didn't work for him, uh, he was a great guy for my wife to work for and, and just a, a great guy in general. And I think, a, you know, to use the cliche, a great American. And so we, we were lucky to be able to work for good people who that you could be proud of to tell your parents you were working for. You know, you hear stories about certain, I won't, you know, won't use names, but, you know, for example, a certain former presidential camp candidate who, you know, may you know, been accused of uh, degrading staff, uh, throwing binders at staff, you know, things like that. So you'd hear nightmare stories like that from time to time. But I think that was, that's, I think, the exception. I think the people, uh, when you're working for someone in that environment, there's a little bit of a, a luxury to choose, I think, and, and at least uh, uh, maybe not your first job, but you position yourself into a job where you, you can choose to, to, to be the, with the person that you admire. Right. Were yeah. You I, were you surprised that Graham uh, dropped his candidacy so early on? Because I, I, how many candidates were there? A handful and, and he came in last kind of thing and that's why he dropped out? Yeah, he came in fifth, I think, in Iowa, fourth or fifth. He was expected to come in much better. We had had a, there had been a straw vote in Louisiana and uh, he had he had lost that there was some my my recollection this is a long time ago there was some some controversy there some of the buchanan uh people were sort of accused of stirring up some racial uh issues with senator graham uh his wife is asian and so there was a little bit of uh some whispering campaign that maybe there was some some of that that had been brought up so it, he lost in louisiana and then uh that was i think sort of uh a wake-up call and then when, when he came in fifth in Iowa I think it just became clear that it was not his year. Yeah uh, you, you got to talk to Graham uh, senator at the age of 25 I'm 51 I've never talked to a U.S. senator it's pretty cool. Well I'm sure they'd take if you you know once the COVID uh, gets behind us you can go and and, and uh, give them money I'm sure they'll talk to you then. <laughs> We're gonna get him on the podcast. Be happy to yeah. Um, I, I would love that. I, I did actually talk to a senator from Illinois once because I was um, making phone calls for a presidential campaign uh, back in the fall, actually. And we were phone banking for, uh, for Andrew Yang. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, I've heard of him. And we were phone banking Illinois. And we, were, we were just calling people and making sure that the people were, number one, still alive, had the name that was on record, and trying to figure out who they supported. And this old guy picks up the phone and he starts talking about like how Illinois needs better education reform or uh, the student debt uh, crisis is out of hand. And he started talking about legislation that he had written back in the seventies or eighties. And he tells me his name and, and I look him up and sure enough on Wikipedia, he's a former Illinois state Senator. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. And then I actually went, uh, my parents live in New Hampshire, which, as you know, get spoiled by all the presidential candidates. So I, w I got to go up and meet Andrew Yang, who I admire personally. Oh, nice. So yeah. that was really cool. Um, but yeah, so let's see. There was one more thing I wanted to say before moving on to law school. 
there's a there's a perception I think that's pretty popular that uh, politicians are like power hungry, generally by default, and that the people that should be should be politicians and should be serving in public office are typically the ones that don't want to. How do you feel about that perception? I mean, do you think that it exists, and and do you think that it, it applied to the people whose campaigns you worked with? Like, did you think that there was a an undercurrent of just wanting power and wanting influence? Or were these people genuinely trying to make the world a better place? Well, you know, that that's, it's interesting. I mean, I, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I, maybe I have to believe this, but I, I think, I think for the most part, I mean, you got to remember there, there, you know, there's a hundred senators. And so I'm sure out of every hundred, there's going to be a couple that are in, in, in line with what you're describing, the, the power hungry. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's the grind. I mean, to fundraise and to travel and be away from your family to, uh, you know, just the sacrifices that, that these people make. And especially in the house of representatives, you know, you're being, uh, you're up for reelection every two years. So it's, it's just the grind is even, even harder. I think there has to be a certain level of wanting to make a difference. I mean, I think, I think most of the senators, most of the representatives that come in are, truly interested in making a difference making you know from from a policy perspective maybe over time when you know you live in a bubble and you don't drive your own car uh for for six years or 20 years maybe you know maybe that corrupts you over time um but i but i i do think and and, and again maybe i'm naive I, I probably am um not sure that that's a necessarily a bad thing but i i like to think that uh that that they get into politics for the right reasons. Now they, they may stay in for, for the wrong reasons, but I think they, they at least start out for the right reasons. Yeah. Going back to Frist uh, saying he was going to just do 12 years uh, and then actually doing that. And I imagine he, uh, to your point, uh, it becomes a really attractive place to stay once you've been uh, a bit corrupted by the power there. Oh yeah, I mean, especially if you're the Senate Majority Leader, you've got an office in in the Capitol building that you know, uh, hi historical figures that everyone recognizes their names have been in those offices, and you're you know have had that position, and you know you're one you know you're you're one of the the four people in line for the president or five people in line to be president. I mean, it, yeah, that you don't drive your own car, you uh, walk through security without, you know, being stopped. I mean, it's just the trappings of that. I'm sure it, it, you know, plus there's a lot of pressure for you to stay in because who knows what's going to happen to the next person. And there's a lot of prestige that, that Tennessee uh, probably lost when, when the majority leader of the Senate was no longer a Tennessee Senator. Right. And so there's, there's that home, home state pressure. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure it was a very hard decision. But he, he clearly has uh, some serious fortitude to, to stick with what he originally committed to. Yep, yep. William, uh, you get to uh, answer a question that we've asked most of our guests. Um, would you rather, at the age of 25, you're not married uh, in this hypothetical, uh, you don't have any kids, you have nothing tying you down, you can literally go do anything you want, but you've uh, narrowed it down to two choices. You can either join the U.S. military, spend four years in the in the military, and who knows where you end up going over those four years. Do, do I have a particular branch? 
you can go into any branch. You okay. Can. Okay. If they'll take you, not not all branches take everybody, but no, that's fair. I'm sure in your case, you, you would be taken by all of them. Or you can uh, every week for six months put together a stand-up comedy routine and deliver it in front of strangers. Every week for six months. What do you choose, and why? That's well. That that's a good question. I uh, I would like to choose the military because I I think it would have been good for me at twenty five and and now. Uh, I don't think I would have made it in the military. So I I, I think I I would choose the comedy route really so it's more about going away from one and that leads you with the only other option we've given you yeah that's right i think i think they're i think they're both tough choices in in, in much different ways and i don't mean that any disrespect in that but uh uh yeah i i, I don't think i don't think i would be cut out for military life i, I have too much of a uh sarcastic um, caustic, uh, anti-authority uh, streak, I just don't think I would have made it uh, very far. Uh, and so I, I, think, uh, I think that only ends in tears. Uh, and, 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 and the tears from, from sort of washing out of the military, I think would have much lasting, much long lasting effects on my career and my life than, than being a failed stand-up comedian. Yeah, I, I think you you would probably avoid the brig, but you'd be breaking a lot of rocks. I imagine. <laughs> That's fair. It sounds like you think that it would it would be a source of trauma rather than a uh, a strengthening process. The military. No, I th I started out by saying I, I, w I would I would wish that I could choose the military because I think it would be I think it would have been good for me. It would have, would be good for me. Uh, I just don't think I would have learned fast enough. To, to survive in uh, mm. and, and my mouth much, I mean, the way it's all of my life and much less uh, pressure-filled situations would get me in trouble. I, I have seen that in action. It, it just would, Paul. You know that. It, it just would. <laughs> would so, if you were in the military together, I would uh, love to stand behind you and just watch you let, let it fly. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then watch me get smacked in the face. Yes. Right. Do you think you, uh, if you, so, so you've chosen the, uh, the comedy route in this uh, fictitious. Yes. Uh, do you think you'd be a pretty good comedian by the end of the six months? You know, I, I think it would, I think it would be something that uh, would, would be, uh, would be fun. And so I think, I think, I don't know, this sounds egoistic, but I think I could be successful in some sort of whatever that measure is, whether it's you're, you're surviving or you're getting satisfaction out of the job. I think I could, I could see that. I, I think it would be a rewarding, a rewarding career path from that perspective because I, I do like to make people laugh. I do like to, to tell funny stories and, and, and get that reaction from people. And I think it's just got to be satisfying when you, you know, have a room uh, reacting to what you're saying and, and hopefully in a positive way, especially in a positive way, I, I just think that would be a rush. I, I, so I, I, yeah, I think I think it would be fun to do. Yeah, I'm at, like it's fun to get a, a small room uh, of friends or coworkers to laugh, but it's another thing to get str fifty strangers, a hundred strangers to laugh. I mean, what a rush! You're right. Yeah, and I mean it. It, it, it takes such a skill to 
you know, it's one thing to, to be react, you know, to react to people and to make little quips and get laughs like that, you know, because it, it's, that's just cheap, but to actually be the one where you're having to tell the story in a way that you're bringing the audience along. I mean, that's a skill that, that, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's easy to play off of someone. It's easier to play off of someone, but, but to, to be that center of attention and to, to, to get people where you want them to be. So at the end they're going, Oh, I didn't see that coming. And they just start laughing. I, I think that, that, that takes a skill, obviously. Yeah. I think you'd be pretty good at it actually. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start. It's ne it's never too late. Yeah. We're gonna... I, I'd like my military career. I don't think, I don't think my weight and age would be a, uh, a drawback for the comedy career. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we're going to start a comedy club in Paul's basement. So I heard it's palatial. I think was that the word Gene oh, used? God. <laughs> the palatial estate. It was funny. I think Gene came into the podcast ready and armed with that phrase. Well, he used it a couple of times, so I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, he, he kind of fell in love with the whole uh, notion of that. Yeah. Let's talk about law school, um, which you decided to go to. I don't know why. Why did you decide to go to law school? Uh, boredom, I guess, and not knowing what else to do. Right. So, uh, no, uh, you know, it was always one of those things that I thought I might be good at when, when you're a sarcastic argumentative child, everyone tells you, <laughs> you know, you, sh you, you should be a lawyer. And so I think there, there's a little bit of that that gets internalized, uh, uh, when you hear it so much. Um, the, the real story is basically I, we, we moved back to, uh, Atlanta, uh, when our first daughter was born, she was born in DC. And, and a few weeks later we moved back to Atlanta. Um, and, uh, I was interviewing at a, at a, at a company. Uh, I was going to be there the first lobbyist that they ever had. I was supposed to set up the lobbying shop for that company. The, uh, person I was interviewing with was trying to tell me all the great things about the company. And one of the benefits that they had was they would pay for me to go back to school and so wanting to be a conscientious, ingratiating person, I said, oh, I've always thought about going back to law school. That sounds like a great benefit. Thank, thank you, sir. I, I look forward to, to joining the company. And uh, I got the job, and then it became every, uh, every couple of months, I'd get a question of, well, when are you going to go back to law school? <laughs> and so uh, You said I, that during the interview. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you, you say what you – you know, you say what you they, you think they want to hear, right? Uh, like like any any smart person trying to trick someone into giving them a job. So they were they started giving you some crap about it, or just yeah, just just checking in. When when are you going to go to law school? You you know, I thought that was something you wanted to do, and I said, you know, Michael, that was the my my boss's name. I said, fine, Michael, I'll I'll take the LSAT, you know, which is the entrance exam. If I if I get in, I'll go. If not, then you'll get off my back about it, and you know. I'll move on with my life. And I was fortunate enough to, to score well enough to go to, to Georgia State's night program, um, which I went to for four years, uh, you know, while working a full-time job in, in Alpharetta, north of Atlanta. I'd, I'd get in my car at five o'clock every, every afternoon and drive a full hour, uh, 20 miles, a full hour, and walk into class right as it was starting and basically did that for four years. And yeah, that's, you gotta, that's a brutal drive with no traffic. Alpharetta is a haul. I can't imagine trying to get there around dinner time. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's twenty miles, but it was it was an hour 
two hour plus, you know, every, you know, I say every day. I mean, it was, it was three or four times a week, just, just depending on the semester. And you had the full-time job and you had a toddler, right? Cause you just had a, had your daughter. Correct. Yes. I, I obviously couldn't have done it without my wife uh, allowing me to, because we had a, a, a uh, in 2001, we had a, a uh, uh, four-year-old and then a, a child who was just born. So, yep, li literally in diapers, just just born. So Keith was very supportive and, and allowed me the opportunity to, to do that. So I always said I had the easy part of, the, of, that, uh, of that gig. If that's the easy part, oof, man, both, yeah. Because doing a full-time job, taking up all your energy and then getting in the car and going to night school that's that's a lot but i i've never had kids so i obviously can't speak to what that would be like so babies are 24 7 yeah there's there's no get you know at least in the hour i was in the car there was no you know i could i could turn off the the, the noise and just you know veg mm -hmm. out there's there's no there's no turning off the noise with a four-year-old and a you know, less than one-year-old was keith working uh during this time as well uh, she was doing some part-time work, but but mo mostly just mostly just uh, raising the the kids and and keeping keeping sane. Nice. So I was in law school from from two thousand one to to two thousand five, uh, and uh, you know still doing a full-time job. So I was uh, would 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 travel uh, on my on my lobbying trips uh, every once in a while. So I would always try to to schedule those so I'd go up on a on an off day uh, where I didn't have school that night. Uh, but I was still learning, I mean, school had just started, so I was still learning how to balance all that. Um, I, I went up to, to Washington on uh, September 10th, 2001, and uh, was supposed to have some meetings on September 11th up on the Hill. I was gonna come home that evening and uh, had law school you know, the rest of that week. Uh, but of course, we all know what happened that Tuesday morning uh, on September 11th. Uh, I was actually in the offices with uh, uh, our lobbyist, a uh, you know, good friend of mine, and uh, of course, like everybody else in America, you know, we everybody thought, oh, this was a a horrible accident. You know, it's unclear what's happened, but you know, it's certainly tragic. But you know, it it's a one thing, it's a one-time thing, and and you know we're basically going to continue with our day. In fact, I remember asking Bob, I said, you know, do you think you, as our lobbyist, I said, uh, you know, do you think we're going to need to cancel our, our meetings? This was after the first plane, of course, not you know, before the second plane. And he said, Oh no, you know, we're not meeting with anyone from New York. I'm sure they're going to be, uh, you know, very busy with, with trying to figure out, you know, what happened with this terrible plane accident and, you know, they have constituent issues, but we should be fine. And then of course, you know, the second plane hit, it was clear what was going on, or at least more clear what was going on, and that we were going to Capitol Hill. In fact, uh, we sat on uh, on basically on M Street and uh, watched the news just like the rest of the world. Uh, I remember watching the traffic, kind of just one giant line of traffic uh, trying to get out of the city. I'd given up my hotel room that that morning because, of course, I was you know leaving that day. And so didn't have a hotel room. All the all the rooms were were full because everyone was getting stuck in the in the city like me. I remember going to the rent a car company to see if I could rent a car. They wanted to charge a couple thousand dollars for a one way rental, so that didn't seem like a an option. So fortunately, I was able to spend the night there a couple of a couple of nights uh, while while uh, travel got sorted out. I remember having to 
email my professors to say, hey, I'm not gonna, not gonna be there on Wednesday and I'm not sure when I'll be there uh, on, if I'll be there on Thursday and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here in DC. And uh, so that was kind of a, a obviously a, an interesting time and you know, uh, an interesting wrinkle in the, you know, getting, settling into law school and, and you know, meeting the professors a week before and then, you know, having that, uh, uh, working, working through that, so. Wow. Yeah, that was the uh, very beginning of uh, your law school, right? It was the first semester. Yeah, it was first semester, yeah. And, yeah. you know. Well, uh, so the, the, when the plane hit the Pentagon, um, I imagine you learned about it just like everybody else did that wasn't near the site. You learned about it on TV probably, but uh, you weren't that far from uh, that third plane hitting the Pentagon on being on industry, right? No, we were, yeah, I mean, we were, I think it's probably a couple of miles, but uh, so, you know, we couldn't see anything. Uh, but the next morning when, uh, when I came into to DC uh, with, you know, my, my friend, we drove by the Pentagon and you could, you could obviously see the smoke. I mean, it was still, still you know, clearly a, an active site. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, and then, you know, you're worried about, I remember uh, Bob's house was next to uh, CIA headquarters. And so when we finally got out to his house that evening, I mean, it took, we didn't even try to leave before, I think it was like four or five o'clock in the afternoon, just because the, it, the whole area was jammed with traffic. Finally got home, his wife was talking about all the helicopters going in and out of, of Langley. And uh, I remember, having a, a thought at one point when uh, the president wasn't returning to DC, I kept, I just remember thinking they know something, there's a dirty bomb or something in the city and that's why they're not bringing the president back. And I, I just remember going, Holy cow, what, you know, what, what other shoes about to drop here? And then of course he finally came back and, and gave a speech, you know, from the, from the white house. Uh, but yeah, it was a, a weird, weird day. And yeah, you know, for a lot of people, I remember, calling Keith and she was at, at home. And at that point we just had Ann who was pro probably, well, she must, she was four or not quite four and they were watching TV. And of course, Keith is worried about me being in DC and she's just crying. And of course, Ann, my, my oldest daughter's crying cause she, her mother's crying. I said, hmm. you know, just turn off the television. There's nothing, you know, I'm fine. That there's nothing you're going to do about it. Nothing you're going to learn on the news about about me. So why don't you just you know turn off the TV, go to your play group with for for Anne and and her friends, and just you know continue on with what your you know what your plans were. It's yeah, it's hard. You're you know you're separated like that. Yeah, even though you you were safe and uh, your wife and daughters were safe, it's still uh, disconcerting to say the least. Even I was even like I think seven or eight years old, and and it felt like the whole world was still for a day you couldn't just not think about it yeah yeah i mean everybody's got their their 9-11 story uh, obviously and and they're pretty much all the same i mean unless you're immediately impacted by that but again just sort of by happenstance being in dc on that day just sort of for for me it's it's just it was made it that much more unusual yeah yeah totally Cool. So, uh, William, you're, you're the proud uh, father of three daughters. Uh, and as we were just talking about, one uh, is graduating college, one's a freshman in college, and I think you have a high schooler as well. Yeah. Um, tell us about your family. Tell what it was like uh, raising your three daughters. Um, and uh, tell us about each one of them individually. Sure. So, uh, 
yeah, three three daughters. My oldest is name is Anne. She's graduating from UGA this uh, this semester. Uh, she hopes to. She's graduating with a degree uh, in entertainment and media studies. So if any of your dozens of listeners out there uh, have any connections for uh, as a, a screenwriting or staff writing, that would that would certainly uh, that's that's what she's hoping to get into. We're we're pretty big in California. Are you good? In yeah. Relative. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so you know that's that's her that's her hope, uh, and uh, we'll we'll see what that what that leads to. Uh, Isabel, my uh, middle daughter, is a uh, freshman at UGA. She is studying uh, German and history. She hopes to one day become a. Uh, I think, you know, this changes a lot, but I think it's uh, still to be a uh, uh, curator at a museum, to have her own museum, uh, preferably in German, uh, in, in Germany. Um, and so that we'll, we'll see if that, uh, how that plays out. But yeah, she loves uh, German history and you know, the German culture. And so uh, that's something that she's passionate about. So hopefully she'll be able to, to do that. And then Catherine, my youngest, is uh, in 10th grade in high school, and uh, she wants to hopefully go to medical school or do something in the medical uh, uh, field uh, when, she, when she graduates from college. Uh, and, and they're all, you know, they, I'm, I'm lucky. They're all very good sisters. Um, you know, the, I, I grew up with a brother, so I, I, I only know, you know, in, in pairs. Uh, I've experienced in th with three uh, when there are two of them together, they get along great. When there's the third, someone gets left out, right? Some some alliance forms, and it's you know it's it's not it's not horrible, but it just it, you just know it's there. Uh, they they all get along very well, but it, it's still that dynamic of when when there's a third, someone's left out. So, how many kids do you have, Paul? I have three, and you're absolutely right. Uh, alliances are formed immediately when the three of them. Or in the same uh, room or same location, and they shift. That's what I find. They it, it's not always the same one getting excluded. So Let, let's just say it shifts occasionally, but there's pretty much the same alliance for uh, most of uh, their interactions. You have one boy, two girls. Oldest is a boy, and then two daughters. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if that. I wonder if that is the difference. Uh, that and my middle kid has a really uh, strong personality. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I'm the third of four. The oldest is a is a girl, my big sister, and then it's three boys, and I'm the middle of the boys, and and so there was always the princess effect. She was the princess. Sure. The boys were the the boys, and then uh, between us, um, it was. I think my big brother, and my little brother, actually were better friends than I was with either of them. But Actually. like you said, things shift, you know. So now. I was better friends with my sister, I think, back in the day. And now, now we're all trying to be better siblings to each other in general, but uh, we're all spread out across the country. So it's tough sometimes. Yeah, it's um, hard. And that's, you know, and I tell them, I, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, you, it's, it's hard to maintain relationships. It's very easy to, to damage them. And, and, you know, you're eventually going to get older and you're going to, you know, you, you, you would regret not having that relationship, I think. So I, I try to try to stress that with them. And, uh, yeah, it's the longest running friendship that you'll ever have is, is your siblings. That's right. It sounds like you're a, a really wise and a good dad these days, William. Was it like that uh, at the birth of your uh, first child? 
<laughs> no, uh, you know, I think uh, you, you, it's on the job training, right? You learn as you go. Yeah. So when uh, we were in the hospital and, and they were literally about to deliver Ann, uh, the doctor's there and I'm there and, and uh, literally it's, 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 it's about to happen. And the doctor drops one of the instruments on the floor. And I'm a conscientious Southern gentleman who sees that this has happened. So I casually reach down and grab the instrument and I put it back on the little table. And I think, what a hero am I? Here I am in all this chaos. I, I'm helping this, this doctor. And she looks at me with this look like, you moron. And she goes, that was sterile. <laughs> and a nurse immediately comes and takes all of that away and, and replaces everything on that table. So uh, I, <laughs> we, my wife and I laughed about that for, for quite a while. So, you know, it's, it's little things like that as you're going along where you, you realize, I don't know what I'm doing. And you, you learn and, you, and then you realize, I think, your parents didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> uh, even, even though when you're a kid and you're looking at them, you think, oh, they, they, they you know, they're, they're wise people. They, they know what to, to do. They, they know what advice to give. And you realize they're making it up because you made it up. Yeah, no doubt. Were you the, are you the oldest of, of your two? I am. I'm the, I'm the older brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm an older brother to a younger sister. And uh, I describe myself along with every other first child as the experimental kid that's right <laughs> yeah and, and I, I see that in our family my uh my youngest daughter i don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the show the good place but you know the, the premise is they're in in the good place and you can't you can't curse in the good place so uh kristen bell you know uses the word you know uh, fork and you know shirt balls and stuff like that so my youngest daughter you know, who's, who's 16 does, you know, uses those terms. And so uh, it, it always outrages her sisters. They're like, we couldn't even say gosh when we were her age. And here you're letting her say, <laughs> you know, fork balls. And, and we're like, uh, what do you want from us? We're tired. You know, leave us alone. <laughs> yeah, every, every time my son uh, chooses the wrong path or makes an obvious mistake that the whole family learns about, he'll look at my, uh, my daughter and say, you're welcome. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Smart kids. Yeah. yeah. Good so. time. Well, William, we had a uh, really good time talking to you tonight. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, this episode coming out. Yeah, thanks, William. As do I. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, come find us on Facebook or Instagram. And let us know what you think. We'd love to connect. Thanks for listening.